Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Yes, uh, sorry about that. I was having problems again with uh, Blog Talk's radio mic here. I need to email him about this. I apologize for the pause. It was not my fault. It's something technical here. But anyway, I appreciate you uh, deciding to listen to this broadcast. My name is Kennard Brown, and I am the host for the Merciful Service of God Biblical Instructional Program. Uh, today is uh, November 13, 2010, Saturday, the seventh day of the week, Sabbath, or in Hebrew, Shabbat. Uh, sorry again for that pause. Before I get into the, the Torah portions this week, matter way, the Torah portions is uh, Genesis chapter 28, verses uh, 10 to chapter 32, verse 3. That's a Torah portion. The Hatar or prophet section of the uh, Tanakh or Old Testament is Hosea chapter 12 to um, I'm sorry Hosea chapter 12 verse 13 to Hosea 14 verse 9, and then the Brit Chadasha or the Renewed Covenant is John chapter 1 verse 43 to 51. So anyway, before I, I talk about the Torah portion and the Hatar and the Brit Chadasha Chadasha. Chadasha, rather. Grit Chadasha. Tongue is getting twisted again. <laughs> Tongue twisters. Um, I'm going to talk about our economy again and what uh, experts that research this for a living are telling us. Uh, the media is not going to tell you this because the media does not want to alarm people. They want to. They want you to think that everything is okay and just put your head in the sand and just think everything is okay. Uh, yes, we can. Yes, we can. And and that's what they want you to do. And most people, unfortunately, are following that, that pattern. But anyway, the Economic Policy Institute, which is uh, research and ideas for shared prosperity, uh, the purpose of their organization is shared prosperity, that everybody should be able to make a decent living. This article by Heidi Scherholtz, uh, November 9, 2010, is, is uh, pretty alarming. It says, for four out of five unemployed workers, colon, no jobs. No jobs. Four out of five. So that's a very high percentage of people that are unemployed that cannot find jobs. Now, I don't know if the media has ever told anyone this. Uh, what I mean by the media, the, the popular shows that you look at on television, CNN, CNBC, Fox, ABC, uh, etc., 
those type of uh, media outlets that supposedly are telling us the news and supposedly telling us what we need to know to adjust our lives to any type of uh, serious uh, things that are happening uh, locally, nationally, and internationally. Well, I doubt if they've told anyone this, because uh, this organization does specific research, and it would take somebody who really wants to understand the truth and is not afraid of it to, to research this. But anyway, this article, and I'm just going to only highlight certain elements uh, of it to, to make my point. It says, this morning the Bureau of Labor Statistics released a sobering or a sobering September report from the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey, J-O-L-T-S, the acronym, showing that job openings decreased by 163,000 in September, while downward revisions to earlier data revealed that there were 109,000 fewer job openings in August than previously reported. The total number of job openings in September was 2.9 million, while the total number of unemployed workers was 14.8 million. Let me underscore that. The total number of unemployed workers currently is 14.8 million, or you might as well say, if you want to round it off, to 15 million people. It says the latter data are from the current population survey. This means that the ratio of unemployed workers to job openings was 5.0 to 1 in September, an increase from the revised August ratio of 4.8 to 1. The job seekers ratio is displaying a similar trend to other labor market data. Substantial improvements from late 2009 to the spring of 2010 and then stalling out what are still crisis levels. September's value at 5 to 1 is over three times as high as the first half of 2007 when the ratio averaged 1.5 to 1. So it is important to note that the job seekers ratio does not measure the number of applicants for each job. There may be throngs of applicants for every job posting since job seekers apply for multiple jobs. Instead, the 5 to 1 ratio means that for every five unemployed workers, there is only one job available. Let me underscore that. For every five unemployed workers, there is only one job available. Or for every four out of five, or 80%, unemployed workers, there simply are no jobs. 80%, ladies and gentlemen, that is a huge metric or number or figure. Furthermore, when calculating the ratio of job seekers to job openings, if we were to include not just the 14.8 million unemployed workers, but also the 9.5 million involuntarily part-time workers, part-time workers who want and are able or available for a full-time job and are therefore likely job searching, the ratio would be 8.3 to 1. So with so many unemployed workers per available job, it is no surprise that workers who have been laid off continue to get stuck in unemployment for very long periods. In September, 41.7% of this country's unemployed workers have been unemployed for over six months. The maximum amount of time a worker who has been laid off can receive regular state benefits. On November 30th, the federally funded extended unemployment insurance benefits are set to expire. They do this all the time, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, so far they have been able to renew the uh, or extend the unemployment insurance benefits, and we need to pray to our great God that they do it again. It says, these benefits provide a lifeline to the unemployed and their families during the deepest and longest downturn since the 1930s, while at the same time boosting spending in the economy and therefore generating jobs. The EPI report, a good deal for all, shows that the continuation of unemployment insurance extensions through 2011 will create or save 723,000 full-time equivalent jobs. Now, that's making a very minute dent in the problem, ladies and gentlemen, because as I just mentioned to you in this article, uh, we have quite a few uh, people that are unemployed, um, 14 point or 15 million people. So just 723,000, that, <laughs> that's helping, but it's really not solving the problem. It says, with the labor market currently una un unable to provide jobs for four out of five unemployed workers, or 80% of unemployed workers, Congress must seize this opportunity, and, that, and that's great, but we need to do a whole lot better job than that, ladies and gentlemen. And then this other article, I'm just going to 
go to the conclusion of this. Uh, it says job growth improves, but pace leads full unemployment. I'm sorry. Job growth improves, but pace leads full employment 20 years away. And this is by Heidi Scherholz again, November 5, 2010. And I'm going to go to the subheading at the bottom. Conclusion, it says the labor market remains 7.5 million payroll jobs below where it was at the start of the recession in December 2007. And this number understates the size of the gap in the labor market by failing to take into account the fact that simply to keep up with the growth in the working age population, the labor market should have added around 3.5 million jobs in the nearly three years since December 2007. This means the labor market is now roughly 11 million jobs below the level needed to restore the pre-recession unemployment rate, 5% in December 2007. So that's what the the unemployment rate, December 2007, it was at 5%. It's close to 10% now, ladies and gentlemen. To get down to the pre-recession unemployment rate within five years, the labor market would have to add around 300,000 jobs every month for that entire period, and we're nowhere near doing that now, folks. Exit polls from Tuesday's election revealed that what voters want is for Congress to create jobs and end high unemployment. Soon, Congress will have a good opportunity to do just that. On November 30th, the federally funded extended unemployment insurance benefits are set to expire. These benefits serve two very useful purposes. One is to provide a lifeline to the unemployed and their families during the deepest and longest downturn since the 1930s, and that's very significant for you to understand, folks. But importantly, these benefits also boost spending in the economy and therefore generate jobs. In the paper, A Good Deal for All, which I suggest you you read, we estimate that the continuation of unemployment insurance extensions through 2011 will create or save 723,000 full-time equivalent jobs with a jobs deficit of 11 million jobs and an unemployment rate of 9.6. Congress must seize this opportunity, but as I stated before, 723,000 jobs is not really doing too much. Uh, it's probably like 0.1 or 2% of solving the problem, and that's that's not solving the problem. It's a good start, but we need a whole lot more than that to be able to provide people with jobs. But this is going on as prophesied, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, because of our sins, this country is being cursed, and it will continue to be cursed until we start to really, really care at the beginning of my program, the um, the uh, psalm that is quoted uh, in dramatic uh, format, Psalm 82. This is not only the problem of the United States, but the problem of the entire world, and that's the reason why God is, is slowly but surely cursing the whole world and causing us to go into a great tribulation to wake us up to reality. Uh, psalm trying to find it here uh, so I can read it here. Psalm 82, and I'm going to read it in a complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake. It says, Elohim, which is the Hebrew for God, Elohim stands in a divine assembly. There with the Elohim he judges. How long will you go on judging unfairly, favoring the wicked? And unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, this is the way God feels. Uh, Selah is next to this, which means Pause, or think about what he's saying here. He says in verse 2 of Psalm 82, How long will you go on t- t- judging unfairly? Judging unfairly, favoring the wicked. Verse 3, Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Uphold the rights of the wretched and the poor. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And as filthy rich as this country is, uh, our, we're the, the most rich economy in the world, ladies and gentlemen. And for us to allow people who want to work to allow them to continue to be unemployed and and make uh, those those little checks, I mean those, those little checks <laughs> that come in. I, I remember when I when I was working, you know, God has blessed me to have a uh, home-based business, but I remember when I did work, I've had over 50 jobs, and I remember the, the, the few times I did have to get in on unemployment, those checks are, are not enough to to be able to provide you with what you need to survive. It doesn't, and I've looked at many different programs that only confirms what I've experienced when I did get the unemployment checks. Uh, I've had to get food stamps before, so, you know, I understand what it means to be poor. I understand what it means not to have anything, so, you know, I'm talking from experience. I've made a lot of money, 
and I haven't made a lot of money. I've rubbed shoulders with the rich and the poor. So I'm I'm talking from experience, and is those unemployment checks, all they stop you from doing is starving to death. That's really all they do. They don't really help you pay your bills. They don't really help you to be able to have a livable income to be able to uh, progress or get yourself from quicksand. And that's what I see people in this country when they're unemployed for that long period of time. They're in quicksand, and they need to get out of the quicksand. And <coughs> excuse me, this country has the resources. I'm not talking about the government, but the rich people in this country have the most billionaires in the world. They can immediately help people. There needs to be a program set up that will help people provide no interest loans to people that need finances or, or, or money to get themselves out of their wretched situation. Just like God states here in verse 3 give justice to the weak and the fatherless. The weak. We know who the weak is, and the fatherless. We certainly know who the fatherless are. Uphold the rights of the wretched and poor. And in verse 4, he's really God is getting really specific here. Rescue the destitute and the needy. What I told you about today, as far as providing 723,000 jobs when there's close to 11 to 19.5 uh or close to 15 million people unemployed right now. Is that rescuing the destitute and needy? Is that delivering them from the power of the wicked? Is that following that that, that uh, commandment there in verse 4 of Psalm 82? That's not rescuing the destitute and needy. That's not delivering them from the power of the wicked. That's not doing hardly anything. It's not solving the problem. And we, it's not like we don't have the monies, ladies and gentlemen. We do. We do. But we just don't collectively as a nation don't care we don't care we, we want to we're too busy building wealth and focusing on ourselves and, and we have to stop that we can't be like the rich fool and and let's go let's turn to luke chapter uh what is it luke chapter 12 i think and and then let's let's see what god tells us about being a rich fool and the fact that we shouldn't be rich fools for those who are rich, uh, in Luke chapter 12. Well, let me start in, in, in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, this is in the complete Jewish Bible version, for clarity's sake, tell my brother to share with me the property we inherited. So this is about money, okay? And in verse 14 of Luke chapter 12, but Yeshua, which is uh, Jesus' Hebrew name, Answered him, my friend, who appointed me judge or arbitrator over you? Verse 15. Then to the people he said, be careful to guard against all forms of greed, because even if someone is rich, even if someone is rich, his life does not consist in what he owns. And then he gives a parable or an illustration. Verse 16. And he gave them this illustration. There was a man whose land was very productive. Verse 17, he debated with himself, what should I do? I haven't enough room for all my crops, or today, for the 21st century, all my money. Verse 18, then he said, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and, for 21st century's sake, uh, bank accounts, and build bigger ones, and I'll store all my wheat and other goods there. Verse 19, then I'll say to myself, you're a lucky man. You have a big supply of goods or money laid up that will last many years start taking it easy start taking it easy eat drink enjoy yourself and i know that there are too many people in this country doing exactly that they're eating especially eating drinking and drinking a lot too and enjoying ourselves and taking it easy living like sodomites that's what we're doing you know and and if you guys have been listening to my program, you know that the sin of sodomy was not just homosexuality. That's just one of them. It was not caring for the poor, just being selfish, thinking about yourself. And that's what the rich fool does here. Okay, in verse 20. But God said to him, of Luke 12, verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night you will die. And the things you prepared, 
whose will they be? In verse 21, that's how it is with anyone, anyone, and this is just anyone, who stores up wealth for himself without being rich toward God. And, of course, in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of um, when Christ comes back and there will be sheep on the right and goat on the left, uh, that's in that parable he talks about the fact that uh, if you fed the hungry, visited the sick, uh, visited those in prison and so forth, if you did it for these individuals, then you did it for him. So that's how you, you give to God by, by uh, treating your fellow man with respect and, and, and love and compassion. That's how you give to God. But this guy, he wasn't thinking about anyone but himself. And unfortunately, there's quite a few people that have that type of attitude, whether they're rich or poor. They have this attitude of thinking about themselves. I just want to take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy myself. And if you can help someone else out and, 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 you, don't ha- and you have the means to do it and you don't, that's sin to God. God does not like that. And, 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 that's, and I see that. I, I'm talking from experience. I, I'm, I'm a 44-year-old man, so I think I can talk from experience now. And very few people that I know of that have actually really have showed me that they really care about somebody other than themselves. I mean, very few people. Most people only do things because it will benefit them. Uh, most people only give because they're going to get something back. And, you know, in James chapter 2, verse 14, James 2, verse 14, the complete, complete Jewish Bible version, it states this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no actions to prove it? Is such faith able to save him? Now, he gives an example, which goes along with what I'm talking about here, verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and someone says to him, Shalom, or peace, that Shalom means peace in Hebrew. Keep warm and eat hearty without giving him what he needs and what good good does it do? And I've had many people tell me that over the years. You know, yeah, yeah, they know my situation. They say, hey, can I, how are you doing? Like everything's okay with me when it's not, okay? And, and, and it's just uh, in verse 17 it says, Thus faith by itself unaccompanied by actions is dead. So it, it's, to have that kind of attitude is just, it's totally wicked. And that is too prevalent today in this country. How can I say that? Well, the fact that we have we our gross domestic product, which is the total sum of goods and services goods and services produced in this country, is close to fifteen trillion dollars, ladies and gentlemen. That's fifteen thousand billion dollars. We have enough money to solve this unemployment problem. Matter of fact, former presidential candidate John Edwards stated that we would only need $20 billion a year to solve the poverty issue in this country. We have the monies. We spend, let me see, five, six, ten. I mean, we spend over ten times that much on our military. If you just go to the United States uh, White House website and go to our federal budget and see what we spend, there's a lot of things that we can knock out on in, in that budget to help the poor. So there's no excuse, ladies and gentlemen, other than the fact that our leaders don't care, the majority of them anyway, don't seem to care about anybody but themselves. All these politicians, and that's why I hate politics, is because most politicians lie. There's a few good ones, okay? But the majority of them don't care about anyone but themselves. And and they do not tell you the truth. They do not tell you the truth. And they only tell you what you want to hear so they can get elected. And then once they get elected, they immediately turn and they don't tell you the truth. They don't do what they said they were going to do. I would say politicians are probably the world's greatest actors. I mean, if somebody was trying to recruit an actor for a movie, they ought to go to politicians because they are, oh, man, they are definitely the world's greatest actors. So... I just wanted to point this out, the tremendous problems that we're having here financially, and, and folks, it's not going to get any better, unfortunately, unless we repent. Uh, we have to repent, and we have to to realize that God is not pleased with our behavior, and he's going to continue to cause problems unless we start to, to, to wake up and realize that we need to obey him. 
We need to obey him, and we need to to learn how to enjoy obeying him, or else he will continue to allow things to happen to us, and things are just going to get tough and more difficult for us, uh, unfortunately. But anyway, i just going to read this prophecy here real quick, and then we'll go over the Torah portions here. Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3, and I'm reading this in the Jewish Study Bible version. It says, For lo, uh, Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1, For lo, the sovereign Lord of hosts were removed from Jerusalem and from Judah. And that I have to explain this again over and over again, but uh, whenever you see Jerusalem associated with, with Judah, and in more cases than not, it's, it's referring to all the tribes of Israel, and many people, when they see Israel in the Bible, they think it's just referring to Jews, and it's not. Um, for proof of that, go to Britam.org, B as in boy, R-I-T-A-M, B as in boy, R-I-T-A-M.org. And the website was developed by a Jew, Orthodox Jew. He lives in the city, old city of Jerusalem, Yer Davidi. And he has uncovered some information to prove through the Bible and also through secular sources outside the Bible that the 12 tribes of Israel consist of the geographical regions of the day, uh, the United States, uh, Great Britain, United Kingdom, uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, the countries in Northwestern Europe. That is Israel today, geographically. And I know some people may say, oh, that's not true, but... When you look at the prophecies of the Bible and you look at what the, the, the uh, Ephraim consists of, which is, is a, a nickname basically for all the, the other tribes, the ten tribes, the so-called ten lost tribes of Israel. And the truth of the matter is many of you listening to me right now have Israelite blood in you, and you are really an Israelite. Um, that is the truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And the Jews are Israelites, but they're not all Israelites, and they're not all the Israelites. And I forgot to mention the uh, the country in, uh, in the Middle East. Israel is also a part of all the tribes, geographically. And the Jews consist of the tribe of Judah. And many people don't realize this, but in 721 B.C., the well, before I get into that, uh, because of Solomon's sin, God has split Israel into two houses, the house of Judah and the house of Israel. The house of Judah consists uh, of Judah, Levi, and Benjamin, uh, some parts of Benjamin. But the rest of the tribes were ten tribes, and they were separated. So that was the northern kingdom, the house of, of, of Israel, and then you had the house of Judah, which was the southern kingdom. And what happened in 721 B.C., God allowed Isaiah to take um, the uh, house of Israel, the ten tribes, into captivity. And then later on, in 586 B.C., he had allowed the Babylonians, who conquered the Isaiahs, to take over the house of Judah. Now, 70 years of um, slavery, God allowed through Cyrus, King Cyrus, he stirred up his spirit, or his uh, ability to think, to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. Now, some of the tribes, some of the people of the ten tribes of Israel came along with them, but not all of them. And then from that point on, many historians uh, consider, hey, um, Israelites, they were just Jews, and, and that's that. All the people that came back from the Babylonian captivity, they all were considered Jews, and that's that. But the fact of the matter is, the Jews are not all Israel. There are other tribes. There are only one tribe. And like I said, Levi and Benjamin merged in with uh, Judah. So that is the truth in the matter. So anyway, I need to explain it every time that I uh, come across passages like this because I know some people are not familiar with me, may, may be hearing me for the first time. But anyway, when it says, For lo, the sovereign Lord of hosts, removed from Jerusalem and from Judah, prop and stay, every prop of food and every prop of water, soldier and warrior, magistrate and prophet, agur and elder, captain of fifty, magnate and concert, skilled artisan and expert and chanter. 
and he will make boys their rulers, and babes shall govern them. And so the people shall oppress one another, each oppressing his fellow. The young shall bully the old, and the despised shall bully the honored. This sounds like 21st century America to me. It says in verse 6, For, for should a, a man seize his brother in whose father's house there is clothing, come, be a chief over us, and let this room be under your care. The other would thereupon protest, I will not be a dresser of wounds with no food or clothing in my house. You shall not make me chief of a people. Ah, Jerusalem has stumbled, which is referring to the ten tribes, and Judah is falling, referring to the Jews, because by word and deed they insult the Lord, defying his majestic glance. Their partiality and judgment. Their partiality and judgment. That's the problem today in America. We're partial toward people who are poor. We don't help the poor. We don't help the unemployed like we should. We don't. And it's not amazing that the following verse occurs here in the context of what I'm talking about. It said, they avow their sins like Sodom. And it's got to be talking about Sodom. God has led me to a scripture to continue this, to shed light on what I'm saying here. They avow their sins like Sodom. They do not conceal them. Woe to them, for ill have they served themselves. Hail the just man, for he shall fare well. He shall eat the fruit of his works. Woe to the wicked man, or great sorrow to the wicked man, for he shall fare ill. As his hands have dealt, so shall it be done to him. My people's rulers are babes. It is governed by women, and that's America today, too. You have more women today who want to crack the glass ceiling. In other words, work at a job like a man, you know, and, and this is unfortunately a bad habit that had developed since World War II. Now, of course, Women should have gotten out there and worked because they didn't have no men to, uh, to depend on. They were getting killed in World War II. But after the war was over, the women got accustomed to working like a man, and they wanted equal, and they should get equal pay. I agree on that. They should get equal pay. But you have more women today working and, and focusing on careers when they don't have to, when they have husbands to take care of them, although that may not be the case now with the economy and the way it is now. Women probably are forced to, to get out here and work more than they should, but that's all because of sin. A woman's responsibility is to work out the home. Uh, there's nothing wrong with a woman having a, a good home-based business out of the home. Matter of fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but I know many of you may have heard about Amway and Watkins, network marketing companies and all that. The people who are, more, are the most successful under that, that particular sales model are women. Uh, matter of fact, uh, over 90% of people that are successful in network marketing companies are women. And the reason why, of course, is because women are naturally uh, home-based business entrepreneurs. They really are. They have it in them to, to work out the home and to have home parties and all that. That, that, that is something that, that a woman is so much more better than a man as far as being able to take care of the home and be able to manage the home and even have a business. Uh, if you want to even understand God's viewpoint on what a woman should do and, and how she should act and so forth, if you look at uh, Proverbs, uh, very popular Proverbs, it gives, really tells you the picture of what a godly woman should be. And unfortunately, the average woman in America doesn't fit this. Now, I know there's exceptional cases where you have single women, of course you work. Uh, if you have a husband that's struggling, can't work, don't want to work, lazy, uh, and don't want to improve himself or he's trying to do the best he can and you see that, then, yeah, you need to get out there and work, okay? I'm talking about women that don't have to do those things and they just do it because, oh, I want a career or they're being selfish. That's, that's the women I'm talking to right now. And then Proverbs chapter 31 tells you uh, the kind of woman that God really envisions. Proverbs chapter 31, uh, starting in verse 10. And if you read up to the, the verse 31, it'll give you God's perspective. But anyway, to get to the point, this bad habit of women working when they don't have to, and I just want to underscore that, when they don't have to, has really caused some real bad things to happen to this country in terms of the economy and everything else. Uh, because when women don't take care of their children when they can, when they're making enough money to do it, then it, it it's, uh, causes all kinds of, of problems. Uh, the kids aren't developed properly and and they're not supervised properly and then they grow up to be little monsters or gremlins. In Isaiah chapter 3, 
uh, in verse 12, yeah, my people's rulers are bays that is governed by women, oh, my people. Your leaders are misleaders. They have confused the course of your paths. Verse 13, the Lord stands up to plead a cause. He rises to champion people. The Lord will bring this charge against the elders and officers of his people. It is you who have ravaged the vineyard. That which was robbed from the poor is in your houses. That which was robbed from the poor is in your houses. How dare you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor? And that's what's happening as I'm speaking, ladies and gentlemen, not just in this country, but worldwide. Worldwide. Verse 16. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion, now he's the daughters of Zion, so this is a prophecy, are so vain and walk with heads thrown back with roving eyes and with menching gait, making a twinkling with their feet, my Lord will bear the place of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will uncover their heads. Now you tell me that's not a, a picture of 21st century women today, particularly Americans. Verse 18, In that day my Lord will strip off the finery of the anklets, the fillets, and the crescents, of the eardrops, the bracelets, the veils, the turbans, the armlets, and the sashes, uh, of the talismans and the amulets and the signet rings and the nose rings. You got women with nose, uh, rings in their noses today, don't they? You know, they have that in Africa, but you have that in America. Now they got, um, what do you call it, earrings or whatever, uh, in, in their tongues and all that. You know, it's just uh, the festive robes and mantles and the shawls of purses. Uh, I'm sure any woman's familiar with a purse today. The lace gowns and the linen vests and the kerchiefs and the capes. And then, instead of perfume, there shall be rot. And instead of an apron or rope, and instead of a diadem, of beaten work, a shorn head, instead of a rich robe, or girding, or sackcloth, or burn, instead of a beauty. Instead of beauty. Her men, uh-oh, we head into another war. Her men shall fall by the sword, her fighting manhood in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn, and she shall be empty, she shall sit on the ground. So, unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, this poverty situation, this, what I call a the beginning stages of a depression will lead to war. Why do I say that? Because Bible prophecy reveals it, and also our history reveals it. What happened, if you, if you go on Google and study the Great Depression, what happened um, after Depression, ladies and gentlemen? World War II. And another war is going to occur because, as the Bible states in Ecclesiastes, and history proves this, Go to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, states, verse, in verse 9, Only that shall happen which has happened, only that occurred which has occurred. There is nothing new beneath the sun. I'm reading that in a Jewish study Bible, for clarity's sake. So whatever happened in the past will there will be similar circumstances again in the future. And, and that is the truth, ladies and gentlemen. So let's go to the Torah portion here. I just want to read to you. And then, of course, um, as I stated many times, we are actually experiencing the beginning stages of the third seal. The third seal has been open throughout history, but there's a, there's a time in history where um, in Revelation uh, in chapter 6, let me just read the scripture again for those who have never heard of this before. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, starting in, in verse 5. It says, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I'm in the King James Version here. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, which is talking about economics. Verse 6, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou not hurt the oil and the wine. And my... Uh, King James Study Bible states that the third seal represents inflation and famine, and that's what we're experiencing right now. The balances or scales, the beginning stages of uh, famine anyway, the balances or scales are related to commerce and trade. The word penny better transliterated, denarius, represented about one day's wages. Wheat and barley were considered necessities of life. A measure was about one quart. The price given is about ten times what was normal. Okay, so that is what we're going through in the United States and worldwide, particularly with the, the Fed monetizing or buying debt, buying back our debt with money from thin air. They're just printing me, uh, money from the Treasury Department 
and it's not backed up by anything, and we're, just, we're supposedly buying debt, but what we're doing is getting ourselves into more debt, which is going to cause prices to go up, which will cause more unemployment. And it just we're just on a collision course right now, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just warning you to be prepared. That's all I'm doing. Okay, so let's go over the tour portions. I'm going to use um, a bot here. Uh, it's www.chabad.org, and I'm just going to read the summary of, of the tour portion here to, in Genesis. It states here, uh, Jacob leaves his hometown, Beersheba, and journeys to Haran. On the way, he encounters the place and sleeps there, dreaming of a ladder connecting heaven and earth with angels climbing and descending on it. God appears and promises that the land upon which he lies will be given to his descendants. In the morning, Jacob raises the stone on which he laid his head as an altar and monument, pledging that it will be made the house of God, uh, or Bethel. In Haran, Jacob stays with, his, stays with and works for his uncle Laban, tending Laban's sheep, or Laban, rather. Laban agrees to give him his younger daughter, Rachel, whom Jacob loves, in marriage and return for seven years' labor. But on a wedding night, Laban gives him his elder daughter, Leah. Instead, a deception Jacob discovers only in the morning. Jacob marries Rachel, too, a week later after agreeing to work another seven years for Laban. Leah gives birth to six sons, Reuben, uh, Shimon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, and a daughter, Dinah, while Rachel remains barren. Rachel gives Jacob her handmaid, Bilia, as a wife to, to bear children in her stead, and two more sons, Dan and Nephetili, are born. Leah does the same with her handmaid, Zilpah, who gives birth to Gad and Asher. Finally, Rachel's prayers are answered, and she gives birth to Joseph. Jacob has now been in Haran for 14 years and wishes to return home, but Laban pursues him to remain, now offering him sheep in return for his labor. Jacob prospers despite uh, Laban's repeated attempts to swindle him. <laughs> After six years, Jacob leaves Haran in stealth, fearing that Laban would prevent him from leaving with the family and property for which he labored. Laban pursues Jacob, but is warned by God in a dream not to harm him. Laban and Jacob make a pact on Mount Galed, attested to by a pile of stones, and Jacob proceeds to the Holy Land, where he is met by angels. So that is the entire Torah portion there, Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, verses 32 to 3. Uh, one of the things in here that uh, takes great notice here is how Laban was scheming, and he uh, was very being very unfair to Jacob. And I've been in situations where people have schemed me and, and, and did things deceitfully to me, but just like this story proves, if you're on God's side, nobody can be against you. Uh, you know, you, you're going to win in the long run. You, you are going to win. You're definitely going to win uh, in, the, in the long run. And that's what happened with Jacob. Even though he had to, to uh, work for this, this wicked person for 14 years, in the end, God blessed him with so much more than what he had. And that's the way it is. We have to hold on. We have to, to be patient and wait for God to bless us. And we have to trust. We have to trust in his promises, and he will always come through. And that, that, that is the moral to this, this story, basically, when people are mistreating you. Now, I know that Jacob had basically four wives, and that you can tell of all the trouble that caused as we get into the Torah portion. But basically, um, God created Adam and then Eve. He didn't create uh, Adam and then Eve and then whoever, and then he had sex with all the women. Okay, so obviously God wants a marriage to be just between a man and a woman. I know people may want to argue with me about that, but if you could just study the Bible and look at all the situations where there was polygamy, there was problems. I mean, with Abraham, he married his, uh, his uh, Sarah wanted, she was upset, didn't want to, she didn't but she was upset that she uh, didn't have a child. So what happened? He, uh, Abraham had sex with uh, Hagar, and what happened? Ishmael came, and really that was the genesis of the problem that we have today in the Middle East with the Arabs. Uh, so in every case in the Bible when there's polygamy that you have curses and you have problems. 
And and that only proves that polygamy is not something that God, he may allow that, but it's not the best thing. Just like he allows divorce, but divorce is really not a blessing. It's a curse. I mean, it really uh, is terrible for two people to be married to each other and then they get a divorce. That That's not a good thing. It's really not a good thing. So anyway, um, let's go over the rest of, uh, let's go over the Haftar section or the pr- prophet section, which is, uh, let me look again here on my calendar. It's um, Hosea chapter 12. Let's turn there. Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12. Are you Hosea? Hosea chapter 12. Okay. Hosea chapter 12, starting in verse 13, says, Then Jacob had to flee to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife. So Jacob, uh, remember, his name was changed to Israel. For a wife he had to guard sheep. But when the Lord brought Israel, or Jacob, up from Egypt, it was through a prophet. Through a prophet they were guarded. Ephraim, gave bitter offense, and, and his Lord cast his crimes upon him and requited him for his mockery. Ephraim, in this context, is referring to uh, all the ten tribes uh, of Israel, basically. Um, and then verse 13, uh, chapter 13 of Hosea. Well, that's not chapter 13. Um, yeah, chapter 13. And when Ephraim spoke piety, he was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal, so he died. And now they go on sinning. They have made them molten images, idols by their skill, from their silver, holy the, the work of craftsmen. Yet for these they appoint men to sacrifice. They are wont to kiss calves. But surely they shall be like morning clouds, like dew so early gone, like shaft whirled away. Ephraim was one of the, uh, the leading tribes of, of Israel. And whenever Ephraim is mentioned, uh, matter of fact, the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 37, it links uh Ephraim, let me turn that here real quick, or Ephraim, Ephraim or Ephraim, Uh, right here, in verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me, and you, O mortal, in, in Ezekiel 37, verse 15, and you, O mortal, take a stick and write on it of Judah and Israel and the Israelites associated with him, and take another stick and write on it of Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. So that's the Bible's definition of Ephraim. It's not only the tribe of Ephraim, but also all the house of Israel associated with him. Okay? So let's go back to Hosea chapter 13 when it talks about Ephraim. So you have the Bible's interpretation of Ephraim. When Ephraim spoke piety, he was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal, so he died. And now they go on sinning. They have made them, and he's talking about the Israelites that were associated with Ephraim, uh, the ten tribes. They have made them molten images, idols by their skill from their silver, woolly, the work of, of craftsmen. Yet for these they appoint men to sacrifice. They are wont to kiss cows. And assuredly they shall be like morning clouds, like dew so early gone, like shaft whirled away from the threshing floor, and like smoke from Elatus. Only I, the Lord, have been your God ever since the land of Egypt. You have never known a true God but me. You have never had a helper other than me. I looked after you in the desert, in a thirsty land. When they grazed, they were sated. And when they were sated, they grew haughty, so they forgot me. So I am become like a lion to them, like a leopard I lurk on the way. Like a bear robbed of her young, I attacked them and ripped open the casing of their hearts. I would devour them like a lion. The beasts of the field shall mangle them. You are undone, O Israel. You had no help but me. Where now is your king? So he's associating Israel with Ephraim here. Let him save you. Where are the chieftains in all your towns from whom you demanded? Give me a king and officers. I give you kings in my ear and take them away in my wrath. Ephraim's guilt is bound up. His sin is stored away. Pains of childbirth assail him, and a babe is not wise. For this is no time to survive. And at the birth of babes. From Sheol, or the grave itself, I will save them. Redeem them from very death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Your pestilence, where, O Sheol? Revenge shall be far from my thoughts, for though 
He flourished among reeds, a blast, a wind of the Lord shall come blowing up from the wilderness. His fountain shall be parched, his spring dried up, that wind shall plunder treasures, every lovely object. Samaria, which was the capital city of the ten tribes of Israel, for she has, that's another name for Israel and Ephraim, for she has defied her God, they shall fall by the sword, their infants shall be dashed to death, and their women with child ripped open. And that's unfortunate, but that did happen in the past, and it may happen in the future. Verse 2, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have fallen because of your sin. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Forgive all guilt and accept what is good. Instead of bulls, we will pay the offering of our lips. Isaiah shall not save us. Uh, no more will we ride on steeds, nor ever again will we call our handiwork our God, since in you alone orphans find pity. I will heal their affliction. Generously will I take them back in love. Now notice, if you return, if you repent, if you start to obey God, this is what he will do. It says, For my anger has turned away from them. I will be to Israel like dew. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall strike root like a Lebanon tree. His balls shall spread out far. His beauty shall be like the olive trees. His fragrance like that of Lebanon. They who sit in the shade shall be revived. They shall bring to life new grain. They shall blossom like the vine. His scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, What more have I to do with idols? When I respond and look to him, I become like verdant cypress. Your fruit is provided by me. And we are the leading of Ephraim or the ten tribes. The United States is the leader basically right now. And we are attached to idols. We have a show that epitomizes idol worship, uh, American Idol. And uh, I don't look at that show anymore. I did previously, but uh, it, it is a bunch of idol worship, and I, I don't want to vote for an idol. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, that show focuses on that, and and I, I don't look at it. And plus, it's very worldly and, and, and so forth, and, and that's something that I know that God would, would really spend his time looking at. So, But there's many other things other than that that definitely uh, categorizes our country as being uh, idol worshippers. Uh, not to say that everybody does that uh, knowingly in this country, but um, many do. Uh, they don't care. You know, uh, you have atheists in this country that, with pride, claim that uh, there's no God. You know, and and you know God doesn't like that. He doesn't like that. He's going to punish our nation, and he is punishing our nation because of that. So we 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 must um, understand. Um, and then I'm just looking here uh, in another translation here in Hosea chapter 3, verse 3. It says, Therefore they will be like a morning cloud, like the dew that disappears early, like shaft blown by the wind from the threshing floor, or like smoke that goes out the window. Still, I am Adonai, the Lord your God, in the complete Jewish Bible version, from the land of Egypt, and you don't know any God but me or other than me, any Savior. I knew you in the desert in the land of terrible drought. When they were fed, they were satisfied. When satisfied, they became proud. That's a better translation there. Therefore, they forgot me. And see, that's that's the thing about Americans in particular. When we eat, we just forget about God. We we just you know, we're satisfied, you know. We just and and, and he knows that. And in verse six, that when they were fed, they were satisfied. When satisfied, they became proud. In verse six of Hosea. Therefore, they forgot me. So now I have become like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lurk by the road. I will meet them like a bear whose cubs have been taken. Away, and I would tear their hearts from their bodies. I would devour them like a lion, like a wild animal, ripping them up. It is your destruction, Israel, although your help is in me. So, you know, we don't want to make him angry, and that's what we're doing right now, ladies and gentlemen. He's a being of great patience, but eventually his patience does run out. And, and, and that's what's happening. John chapter 1. To close here. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 43. The day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and find a Philip and said unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip find Nathanael and said unto him, We found him of whom Moses, or Moses in the law tore, and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there 
any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile or deceit. So there was no deceit in Nathanael. In verse 48, Nathanael said unto him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when you were under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, or teacher, thou art the Son of God, you art the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Because I said unto thee, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe, you shall see greater things than this. And then he alludes back to uh, the Torah portion about Jacob's ladder, and in all indications, uh, Yeshua is the ladder, because right here in verse 51, he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And if we turn quickly here to Genesis chapter 28, Genesis chapter 28. Let's see. Okay, verse 10 of Genesis chapter 28. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and, and waited there all night because the sun was set, and he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. Verse 12, And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Obviously, that letter is talking, that ladder rather, that ladder is talking about the Messiah, because in verse 51, And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the sun of man. So the Messiah is how you get to heaven, is how you get to God, is through the Messiah or that ladder. Okay, so the Torah portion for next week, and I'm going to put this in the program so it doesn't take me 20 minutes before the program to put it on. You guys don't know what I'm going to talk about next week, so I apologize for that. But uh, the, the Torah portion next week is Genesis chapter 32, verses 4 to Genesis 36, verse 43. And I'll, I'll type this into the the uh, notes of the program so you'll have it. Genesis 32, verse 4, to Genesis 36, verse 43. Uh, the Haftarah section, Obadiah, chapter 1, verses 1 to 21. And Hosea, chapter 11, verses 7 to 12. And Hosea, chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. And then the Brit Chadasha, the Brit Chadasha, the Brit Chadasha. <laughs> so that I don't get tongue twisted again. Uh, the Renewed Covenant, Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's let's get serious about what's happening here. We are at a point in world history that we really never have been before uh, at this point. Uh, you have a country that's probably the richest country that ever existed in, in, in the world after the flood, the United States. And... We are on the verge of really being in the greatest depression that we ever have been. And I'm telling you these things because uh, God has put it in my mind to tell you, and you need to prepare for the worst, as Noah did in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 11, rather, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says, By faith or trust, Noah, being warned of God, things not seen yet. Now, we don't see people out in the streets starving and, and breaking in people's homes, getting food, but it's going to happen eventually, ladies and gentlemen. We, we have to be prepared because I don't see any indication of all, hardly, of this nation collectively. Now, when I mean collectively as a whole, uh, individual, yes, I do see people repenting, but I don't see it collectively. Like the majority of people in the United States, yes, I want to keep the Shabbat. Yes, I want to keep the holy days of God. Yes, I believe the Old Testament as the New Testament is Scripture and that I should obey everything. Yes, I believe that the, that the law of Moses or the law, the law of Moses is the law of God or the Torah of God and that we should obey it. Yes, I should do everything like the first century church did, the Jewish church. We should keep the Torah and we should do all we can. I don't see that attitude collectively uh, in this nation or all the other geographical regions worldwide. Okay, so I know this is going to continue on until we collectively or the majority repent. 
uh, anyway, it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God, things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And I implore anyone of you that are listening to me right now to save your household, to save yourself. Uh, and we're talking about, first of all, spiritually, you know, physical is second place, but, you know, we need to save ourselves, uh, you know, physically if we can, and that's what Noah did. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I will let you go here. May God keep you and bless you, and um, I'll speak to you next week. Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 